morning. So I want to start with a question, and the question is, what is the most powerful thing in this room? And because we're a church, the answer we'll probably give is God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, Sunday school answers, which are true. They're, they're not false by any means. But what things naturally has God implemented to give power, not just in our lives, but in every person's life? And in this church setting, we might say, well, practically speaking, maybe it's the lead pastor, but I don't think it's him. Or maybe it's the elders. I don't think it's them. Someone might say, well, maybe it's you, because you have a microphone. And while I have an amplification, it's not me. Even I, today, am bowing before something. It's the same thing we're all bowing before in some ways. And that thing is time. We, we say it's telling time. We learn to tell time. And the instant we learn to tell time, that time then begins to tell us everything we should do with our life. That's why I had a, a longer introduction planned today, and I have to skip it because there's not enough time. That's why if I know I'm supposed to be home at 6 p.m. and I look and it's 8 p.m., time will dictate I need to get home to my wife and probably need to show up with flowers and ice cream. Time will cause me to do that. Time tells us when we take breaks. Time tells us what we do on weekends. Time tells us when we have lunch. We all bow before time in some ways. And so it's important that we understand what time is telling us to do. And so we're going to look at Acts 17. Because Paul was a guy who always had this question in mind. What is time telling me to do? What are the times saying to me? How do I act in accord with that? So Acts 17, 16 says this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him, and he was observing the city full of idols. So that's the first important thing that Paul's doing is he's observing. Why is he observing? Because his spirit was being provoked. A spiritually sensitive person is always going to be observing. Observing the people around them, observing the times, observing the things they're hearing, observing everything there is to observe. So if I ask you today, what are the idols prevalent in your city, in your town, in Cape Girardeau County, and you say, well, Paul's actually looking at statues. They're like real idols. We don't have those here. You're not spiritually sensitive. You're not observing. And if you're not observing, you're not going to be able to interact wisely. You're not going to be able to use time well. He's observing the city full of idols, verse 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Why was he reasoning? Because he had reasonable faith. That doesn't just happen. He didn't just walk into it and all of a sudden had an answer prepared for everything. Yes, the Holy Spirit was guiding him, but before that, the Holy Spirit had guided him in study, had guided him to think these things through. Every time a situation came to Paul, he couldn't scoot back to Jerusalem. They didn't have text messages. He couldn't hit his friends up and say, what do I do? He could reason with people because he had thought out his faith. He had made his faith reasonable. So he's observing, he's reasoning. 18, and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Why? Because he was worthy of conversation. He had something to say. He had a presentation. They wanted to converse with him. He was conversing with them. And and that's, I think, important too. He's conversing with them. We are prone to unbelievers or people who don't believe the exact same thing. We, we converse really well about them. How good are we at conversing with them? 
So they were saying, what does this idle babbler wish to say? He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities, said others, because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're proclaiming. Another thing about Paul here. So these are all these like lessons. We're not going to talk about all these lessons, but we need to burn these into our head. You should read these during the week. We should think about them. He went to their place. Paul was willing to play an away game. We're really good about having initiatives, invite people to church, invite people to church, invite people to church, which is awesome. We should do that. But when they say no, we should be willing to go to where they are. Where are they? Starbucks, campus, the break room at Procter & Gamble. Like, where are the people, and are we going, and are we willing to play an away game? Or do we have to get them in a pew, and then we'll talk to them? It has to be one type of seating arrangement. It has to be a pew. We'll sit, then we'll talk about Jesus. Paul's willing to go to them. And and the people, if we're going to reach others, we have to go to them. And that's all Paul's life was. He was always going to them. He's willing to go play an away game. So they say, you're bringing strange things to our ears. 21. All the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So what does Paul bring them? What they worship is hearing something new. What they worship is rhetoric. So what does Paul show up with? Something new and rhetoric. He meets them where they are. What do you want? How how would you listen to this? How will you hear about Jesus? Okay, that's how I'm going to package the gospel. I'm not going to change the gospel. I'm not going to augment the gospel, but I can uh, change its packaging. It's like when you wrap a present for your three-year-old. If you wrap it the same way as you do for a 30-year-old, that three-year-old's not going to get the toy they want and the time they want. You have to make it a little easier, less tape, fewer bows. And Paul knows that because he's observing. He realizes, hey, they're all about rhetoric. They're all about new things. So I'm going to prepare my message in light of that. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe. There's that word again. I observe. I'm paying attention. In some ways, that's like saying, I know you. I've taken time. I've gotten to know you. And he says, you are very religious in all respects. Not what they expected him to say. What do they expect him to say? The same thing that unbelievers expect us to go in and say, you're pagans, you're heathens, you're wrong. That's not what he says. He says, hey, I'm I'm a pretty religious guy. You know what? I'm sensing you're pretty religious too. He's boiling things down to the common denominator. He's not being divisive here yet. What he's doing first is saying, hey, we're all people with certain feelings, certain emotions, certain air we're breathing. We have some similarities. One is that you're very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects, again, I'm not just showing up as a stranger and I don't care anything about you. I've examined your objects. I've looked at uh, what you are into. I know you. While I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this uh, inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, key word, right? Because they like new things, they like knowing things, and he's saying, hey, you got some ignorance going on. I didn't say it, you guys said it, it's on that statue. What you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God. So he's saying all these things you're doing, you don't know this, but you're doing them and you're seeking God. And we could say the same thing about people in our culture. You're doing all these things that we shake our heads at. You're doing all these things we don't like. We should have empathy on them because what they're doing is seeking God. They just don't know it yet. And that's what Paul's telling them. You're seeking God. And if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. 
Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in the hearts of man. That's what Paul's saying here. You have this statue that says to an unknown God, I know which God you want. I know which God you need. Let me tell you about him. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Paul quotes their poets. He quotes their songs. You know a culture by the songs. Think about our culture. What are the songs? What they believe boiled down, we can hear in the lyrics of our day. Turn on pop radio, you can hear the culture. And so Paul had made himself somewhat familiar with that so that he can have interaction with them. Another verse here in Romans 13, 11. You can mark it. You don't have to go there. If you want to go there, you can. Make sure it's in there. Romans 13, 11 says this. Do this. So Romans uh, 1 through 11 is all about like vast, lofty theological ideas. Romans 12 is all about how we live out of those ideas. 13, that continues. And he says, do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Knowing the time. This comes up a lot when Paul's talking. Knowing the time. I think Paul always knew the time, and that's why he was effective. And I think that's what we're called to do. We're called to know the time. To check our watch, or, as I think about it, check our watches. So my first job out of college was as a creative writing teacher and then a soccer coach. And as a soccer coach... um, My watch, I had this digital watch to keep time on, but there's all these functions, all these modes, you had to push all these buttons, so it was hard to jump between timing and actually, like, timing a drill. And so I kept the the watch I used in the classroom on as well, so I had two watches on, one for, like, drills and one for, like, the broader time. And then I moved here, and I, I worked at this church, and then on the side I would train soccer teams. I actually got even nerdier. I had three watches on at that point. Because at practice, I'd like to play a game that was all about time of possession. And so I had to really use one watch a lot. The other watch would tell me how much more time I had in the drill. And then the third watch told me when it's going to be 7 o'clock because minivans are going to be pulling up behind me. And I don't want to keep parents waiting. They have to wait too long. They pull their kid from the team. I get less money. So it wasn't like out of good-naturedness. It was out of, okay, I want to keep this job going. I want to serve them well. Three watches going on, and I think Paul had three watches going on as well. And so what I want to do with our time is look at those three watches, look at what was at play with those three watches, and hopefully use those three watches as this idea that we can go out into the week better equipped to be stewards of the faith we've been graced by using the minds we've been graced. Paul was thinking through these issues. We need to as well. So watch number one, the first watch we have on. Paul had this watch on. We saw it. We saw it in the, in the passage. This was his watch that was observing. Well, watch number one is it's the times. The times of the world around us. The zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. What, what cultural myths are foisted at hearts? Because those very same ones are infiltrating the church. The, the ones we're going to talk about today, I'm going to talk about three. They're inside your heart. If you live in modern-day America, I'm guessing these are, they might not be prevalent, You might not be completely walking to them, but they are in some way inside of you. And if we don't observe that, if we don't realize that, we can't do battle inwardly about that. So how are we going to go out and do battle outwardly with it? So the first one that I think is prevalent uh, in our day, in our age, and I say in society, but what is society? I'm, I'm talking Cape Girardeau. I'm talking Midwest, modern America here. I think the first time that this watch tells is the time of humanism. 
Humanism came out of the Enlightenment. It existed before that, but then we started putting a name to it. Enlighten, to lighten, to have more vision, more knowledge, more light, more education. And it was carried on by Romanticism. And what Romanticism said, it was a literature movement, poetry movement. It said that before the world was all objective, but now the world needs to be subjective. It's all about our feelings. So if we get enough knowledge, enough development, enough science, humankind, on its own, can create a utopia. Can arrive finally at morality. Usually when someone really strongly, passionately believes this, all you have to say to them is, have you watched the evening news lately? Like you can, you can read about the, the murders that Jack the Ripper did, and then you can see that on the evening news. Why hundreds of years later are we still doing the same thing? Why are we still beheading people if we have our smartphones and we have education and we can speak multiple languages? Why are we still lopping off our fellow man's head? But what a humanist will say is that we are on the road to figuring it out, and we will figure it out. We just need more education, more learning, and the key is we need less restriction. And what is restriction? It's a deity. It's God. The fact that God would be over humankind, that we totally have that flipped. Humankind is over God. We've invented God, and we need to live out of that. If you want to have a God, that's fine. Just keep him in your pocket, keep him in your house, and, and be quiet about it. Because it's a man-made invention. It's not real. Humans are what matter. We need to invest everything in humans. The foundations of this worldview, and, and I guarantee in some ways you'll buy into these foundations, or you affirm these foundations, or at least I do. First is that humans are the pinnacle of everything. We're the top dog. We're, we're on top of everything. It's not God and then, and then man, then angels, or God, angels, man, depending on what you believe. It's humans, humans, humans. Second, humans are basically good. Isn't that the sense you get? Again, turn on pop music. Don't you get the sense that humans are basically good? Someone posted on Facebook or somewhere, uh, someone was really nice to it, it restored my hope in humankind. It's a humanistic statement. And I'm not saying she's wrong for saying it. I say it too. It's just kind of jargon, but my hope in humankind. Here's the beauty of humanism. Humanism is all about progress, right? We're going to get there. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. We've got to keep striving. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. What does that admit subconsciously? That the world is not how it should be. Isn't that what it's saying? If we have to progress, that means we're not where we need to be. We have to move towards the goal. That means we haven't arrived at the goal. You know what else says that? The Bible says that. In Eden, the world was as it was supposed to be. It was very good. And then sin entered the world, and mankind was pushed out of Eden. Where did they go? East of Eden. And ever since that time, man has been trying to grope his or her way westward back to this Eden, this paradise lost. And that's what humanism is. It's this groping for this Eden that's totally gone. This paradise, this utopia, it doesn't exist. That's why I love the line in the song, uh, We Three Kings, that says, westward leading, still proceeding. They were groping their way west as well to the new Eden, to Christ. It wasn't about human. It was about the human, the second Adam, the second man who was going to come and bring about a new Eden. But what it's saying is that a humanist wants progress. That means they need hope. And what they do is, instead of putting their hope on a deity, instead of putting their hope on Christ, they're going to put their hope on their fellow man. And that's the thing that seeps into the church. It seeps into our hearts as believers. 
And that's why churches become all about self-help. Because if the utmost is the human, the best thing we can do is become better humans in and of ourselves, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, to be a better you, to change the world. Because we have the power to do it. We have the acumen to do it. It's all us. We can do this, hands in. That's what it becomes. And it reveals something about a Christian when we do this. When I do this. Because I want to say man's basically good as well. What it reveals is that I don't want to put all my eggs of hope in one basket, even if that basket is firmly held by the almighty hand of God. Because what if he blows it? What if he's not real at the end of this? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness and my really smart neighbor or the cure for cancer or technological advancement. Man, Jesus can do a lot of it, but man, if we get enough technology, Jesus can do a lot of it, but if we cure enough diseases, that's what we're doing when we do that. We have to be careful about doing that. Again, Paul was observing the world and acting in accord with what he was observing, but he wasn't acting under the influence of what he was observing. There's a huge difference. I know I'm guilty of humanistic tendencies. The other time that our watch number one tells often, and it springs straight out of humanism, is that we live, and you could all guess this, I I don't think anyone will have a quibble when I say this. I don't think anyone will be like, no, that's not true. We live in an age of overt sexuality. And people say, well, the church needs to stop talking about that. The church is obsessed with it. The church is obsessed with it because the culture is obsessed with it. D.L. Moody said that you should preach with the Bible in one hand, the newspaper with the other. How can you not talk about this? Everyone is talking about this. Listen, again, to the music of our age. You're going to hear humanistic tendency, and you're going to hear sexuality. I mean, top 40 radio, it's, it's riddled with it. So the humanist... Our humanism philosophy says that the human is utmost. Therefore, human freedom, human liberty, a restraint-free human existence, that's the key to progress, which gives way to individualism. So if my goal of being the best human takes me this way and your goal of being the best human takes you this way, we're both right, as long as we're striving towards being the best human being. Again, think of our songs, think of the slogans, a 90s song that said, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Why? If it makes you happy, you're a better human. If you're a better human, we're winning. That's the goal. The, the song that says you can go your own way, I mean, it's culture not grabbed onto that idea. You can go your own way. Any way you want is the right way for you. If you claim it's the right way for you, who am I to say it's not the right way for you? Uh, a cultural maxim that came out a few years ago that still lingers is you look at someone and you say, you do you. I'm going to do me, you do you. You hear the humanism in that? Not this way's right, this way's wrong. It's you do you. You define your own morality, you define your own good, you define your own way to get progress, and I cannot stand in the way of that because we're humanistic, we want to get progress. So self-expression becomes king, and there's no grander, more personal way to express oneself than sex. It is a stripping off of every encumbrance. Literally, it's a stripping off of clothes. It is a stripping off of restraint. I mean, how do kids rebel these days? Usually it's in this realm. I don't have to listen to you, and this is how I can prove it. It's a stripping off of restraint. It's a stripping off of privacy. You see uh, pictures tweeted, uh, celebrities, politicians sharing stuff they shouldn't share, and you're like, how did they get there? Well, what are they doing? 
exactly what the culture is telling them to do, express themselves sexually. And we might pounce on it because we don't like their views, but it's exactly what society will say is the utmost. Paradoxically, the more free we get sexually, the more sex crimes we have and sex trafficking and bondage and addiction. It's funny the chains that we're willing to wear in the name of freedom as a world. And when self-expression rules and sexuality is how it's manifested, chains will always follow. There's always victims. And the victims, the losers in this, are always going to be the ones that are less sexually enlightened. Like, there was a day where if a man left his, his wife and, and children, he's going to be looked down on in society. Nowadays, if they leave their wife and children, they're still going to be looked down on unless it's tied to something sexual, an enlightenment. They win. You automatically win. A recent example of this, and this has been beaten to death, but the Bruce Jenner becoming Caitlyn Jenner scenario, you're going to win an award for courage. And a lot of people say, well, why Why is Jenner winning an award for courage? What is courageous about that? Well, based on what the times say, everything. How could he express himself any grander way or any more sexual way? You talk about throwing off restraint. Even bodily restraint was thrown out. This open vulnerability to sit there and say yes to what the culture is telling him to do. Sit there and say, I'm all in. Self-expression to the nth degree. That's courage. Give him an award. You think about a decade ago, something similar came out where, where someone opened up and was vulnerable, and it was Tim Tebow who came out and said that he was a virgin. And society pounced on him. I mean, you read comment boards, dig out the comment boards of those articles and the comment boards of the recent Jenner articles and, and read the tenor of society. Why? Because one is steeped in freedom, self-expression, liberty, and the other one is restraint. And not only restraint, but restraint under a God who's restricting you. That goes against humanism. If Tebow had said, I'm a virgin because this is the way I feel most expressed and this is the way I arrive at, at my inner peace and this is the way I excel as a human, it would have been okay. It wouldn't have been great. He would, probably wouldn't have gotten an award, but he would have got some high fives and that would have been fine. But it's that restraint of a God falling under a God. He's got, he's got the paradigm swapped. Humans are up here, not God. And this sexuality invades our churches. You think about the things that we consume that the church hundreds of years ago never would have consumed. And it just wrote. You think about the things we don't bat an eye over. And I'm not talking about things out there, groups that are doing this or that. I'm talking about inwardly. In our congregations, in our families, and in our own hearts. It's really easy to look at everyone else. I'm saying here, people who claim belief. People who claim to have that paradigm with a God over them. The third thing, time, that Watch One tells is the time of materialism. Consumerism. Think of the word holiday. What is it made up of? It's actually holy day. Think about our holy days in Cape Girardeau. Are you going to the big Independence Day sale? How about Black Friday that's now moved to Thanksgiving? You got, how about how many shopping days left to Christmas? I imagine that'll come out in about a month. They'll tell you how many shopping days left till Christmas. Christmas is a consumer holiday now. But it's not the only one. Every single holiday is consumer. Because it's the times of our day. 
And the significance that we miss in sexuality, because it doesn't fill us up. Humanistically, we think that's the thing. Self-expression, we'll try that. It doesn't fill us up. It leaves us empty. The significance we miss there, we make up for with things. We have these little calendars made up in our heads that if we do this for 10 years, then we can do that for 10 years. Then we can get the second home. Then we can get the retirement. Then we can do... It's this calendar, and when you don't arrive at that calendar or you're late or you're early on that, people shake their head. Like, no, that's not the way it's supposed to go. And there's nothing wrong with having stuff, and there's nothing wrong with being a wise steward and planner with your money. What's wrong is when it becomes the idol. Again, materialism seeps through into our songs. I also think uh, I love the hashtag, hashtag blessed. Like what blessed meant a couple hundred years ago and what it means now. Blessed used to mean like this special kind of uh, head nod to God and his workings in your life and the way he's filling your heart. Now it means you have a big house. We've totally changed the meaning. Acts 2 said that the early church had everything in common and they shared everything. No one was really struggling. I mean, they didn't have a ton of money, but everyone ate. Everyone had stuff, and you'd meet in, like, the rich person's house because they'd throw open the doors and say, come on in. And the homeless people among your congregation had places to stay, and there was food, and they had all things in common. And now we're really good at sharing what we have on social media. I love the story that happened, I don't know, three weeks ago. I don't know if I love it or hate it, um, but it's telling of the times. And this is the thing. When you read articles, when you look at stuff in our world, apply it to your spiritual life. Cleveland Indians, guy hit his 100th home run. So a nice little milestone for a young player. Hits it into his own bullpen. So for those of you who don't know baseball, that's where the extra pitchers on his home team sit. His teammates, they wear the same jersey. They spend all their time together. Ball lands in their bullpen. What would have happened in in decades past? After the game, there would have been a little clubhouse ceremony. They would have made fun of the guy a little bit, but they would have presented him with the ball. Everyone would have clapped, and he would have put it in a trophy case somewhere. What happened in this instance is that they sent back a ransom note. And every single person in the bullpen, including the coaches, put what they wanted from this guy. And then at the end it said, until you meet our demands, you will not get your ball. We're talking computers, smartphones, smartwatches. One guy put $5,000 or, and then something else. He gave him an option. Just $5,000. And I remember reading this and thinking, that's not teamwork. That's not camaraderie. That's not friendship. That's not kinship. That's not right. And then I read the comments, and for every thought that was like mine, there was a hundred thoughts that said, this is hilarious. This is awesome. This will help baseball. I'm thinking, how will this help baseball? Well, it's baseball falling in line with what the culture values. The funniest comments were the ones that didn't critique the selfishness as selfishness. They critiqued the selfishness because it wasn't played out right. You should have asked for this. That guy should have asked for that. We had no problem with the selfishness. That we praised. It was, man, you're not doing selfishness well. It's stewarding our selfishness. And it seeps into the church. All of these seep into our church because we're people who live in this culture. We have, in our ungenerous churches, a consumer mindset. Many of you will leave today, and the first question will be, what do you think? And it won't be anything about your worship for God or what God revealed or convictions on how you live your life. What it will probably be is, he spoke too fast. Or I didn't agree with his second point. Or he went too long. Or Jeff's guitar sounded weird today. Or I hate that second song. Even what we call it, some of you probably even said it today, and it's not bad that you're saying it, but the phrase church shop. It's actually great that we say that, church shop, because what it, what it says is that subconsciously we've 
learn to speak the vernacular of our culture. Because you can say church shopping to someone who's never been to church, and they'll know exactly what you mean. We're speaking the vernacular of the culture. That's good. What's bad is when we live the vernacular of our culture. One more bad week, and I'm out of there. I will take my business elsewhere. This was never supposed to be a transaction. That's like when someone demands a hug. The hug is ruined as soon as someone demands it. It's not a hug anymore. It seeps into us, and so we have to be aware of that. So we have these things going on. Watch one's telling us the times of our world, the world we're living in, the world we're kind of stuck in in some ways, and we can either march to that drummer or... We can check another watch, and that's what Paul did. He checked, he observed, but he always had watch three going. And watch three is the broader narrative time. So like when I was in practice, the third watch always just told me where we were in practice. So it's 5.30, we've done 30 minutes, I've gotten two drills in, I have an hour and a half left, here's what I can do with my remaining time. It wasn't about the momentary drill, it was about the, the, the broader story. And for us, if you're a believer, the broader story isn't our story at all, it's God's redemptive narrative. Where are we in terms of that? That's what Paul was checking. And so to have that, we have to think about our past, we have to think about our present, we have to think about our future. And what does our past tell us? It tells us that Jesus came and he inaugurated his kingdom. That we are living in a kingdom that's kind of split, and there's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of man. Watch one is telling us all about the kingdom of man, but we can choose as believers to live under the ordinances of the kingdom of God. We don't have full blessing of the kingdom of God yet. We don't have resurrected bodies. We still have pain and sorrow and sin all around us. But that day is coming as well. But it has been inaugurated. And what did Jesus do? Christ came. He lived for us. He died. He is risen. And he will come again. Do we believe that? Do we daily check that on watch three? So when the world's telling us to walk this way, do this thing, believe this thing, are we countering that with what watch three is telling us about what Jesus has done? Some questions to evaluate that. What do you know about heaven? Are we so fixated on the here that we forget about the future? What do you know about heaven? How often do you think about it? Do you really believe it? There's a verse in Hebrews, I think it's in 9, somewhere around 28, that says that that Jesus is going to come a second time and he's not going to come for the salvation of sins. He is going to come for those who belong to him. And then it tells who those people are. Those who eagerly anticipate him. If I told you right now that Jesus was coming today, would you be pumped or would you say, oh, I hope he comes after the barbecue? I remember going on my honeymoon and having this exact thought. I was sitting next to my wife. She had been my wife for a few hours. And we were going to a beach where it was going to be beautiful. We were going to have any food, any drink we wanted, and other honeymoon stuff. We don't have to get explicit. But I was really excited about that. And I remember bartering with God, make this plane land safely. Give us safe travels. And don't even think about coming back this week. Next week's fine. My calendar's clear. And it's a funny, frivolous answer, but in, or example, but in that, you, you see the tragedy in it? There's someone I prefer to you, Jesus. There's something in this place that I prefer to the place that you promised to go and prepare for me. You, you showed me a pretty good picture of what you're going to do behind door number one, and I'll be back. Just give me like 10 more minutes over here in this world. It's a terrible heart position. That's going to be a heart that chooses what watch number one has to offer us because we don't realize the better treasure we have in watch number three. There was a fire, I think it's one of our top two famous, most famous American fires. And I say that because I only know of two. 
There's the Chicago Fire, which a lot of people know about, and there was another one in New York in 1911. There's the tri Triangle Shirt Waste Factory Fire. Very famous fire because it brought on all these work reforms. Sadly, it brought on work reforms because a lot of people died in it. And so there was one floor, and they've actually done study on this, where the women found out that there was a fire, and there's a it's common that there are fires in those days. So they just thought it was a run-of-the-mill fire. And so the evacuation door was this way. They went this way. Hurriedly, they ran into the room. They took off their aprons. They changed some things. They grabbed their personal effects. And by the time they got back across the room, a minute and a half later, the way was blocked with flame. And all of them ended up having to jump out of the window where firefighters were waiting. None of them made it. Everyone perished. And I'm not ripping on their decision in that moment, but it is an apt illustration of what we do. This world is a flame. Are we tying ourselves to the things in it? Or are we observing the things in it and using that to plug people into the better treasure? If your life narrative doesn't have watch three in a major way, you won't care about the right things the right way, and you'll care about the wrong things too much or in the wrong way. Without a steady hold of what Christ did, what Christ is doing and what Christ will do, you will be trapped by the trappings of this world. Like I love that term, otherworldly, that phrase. We are to be in some ways, because supernatural God has chosen us and adopted us as sons and daughters. We are to be otherworldly, but otherworldly minus the other is just worldly. That brings us to watch two. So watch two is informed by watch one on what's going on. Uh, there's a verse in Colossians 4 that says, walk in wisdom among outsiders. We could paraphrase that as walk in wisdom among the world. So it's talking about people outside the church. Walk in wisdom among outsiders. And then it gives how in a clause. It says, making best use of the time. We can't go out and, and actually have any effective evangelism if we don't make best use of the time. How do we make best use of the time? We check watch one, we see what people are believing, and then we topple that, just like Paul did in Acts. So we're informed by watch one. We look at watch three to realize we are transformed and we have a choice for a better treasure. And then we live out watch two. Watch two takes both of those into account and tells us how to live in our present day world, in our circumstances, in our workplaces, in our families. It's our habits, our thoughts, our interactions. That's the controlling force. And so some application points from watch two. First, we have to keep our eye on the prize. But we need to make sure it's the right prize. If you've got a John Lennon Imagine prize, Imagine No Religion, and everyone's holding hands, singing Kumbaya off, we could just get rid of some of these structures, we'd all be okay. If that's it, you've got humanistic leanings. If you've got a Lady Gaga sort of vision. I, I saw SNL um, a few months ago when she was on there, and I watched uh, a little bit of her performance, and the lyric that she just kept saying was, do what you want with my body. That's what our junior hires are hearing. That's what our high schoolers are hearing. That's, I was hearing it. Am I going to walk to that, or am I going to take note of that, observe it, and try and counter that? If you, have a, if you went through a rap phase, like most people did, uh, in the early 2000s, 50 Cent had a famous album, Get Rich or Die Trying. It's materialism. It seeped into our culture. It's, it's what we're all about, getting rich or dying trying. Actually, getting rich and dying trying. What's your prize? Is your prize Christ? Is your prize the new heavens and new earth? Is your prize righteousness? Is your prize holiness? Second, we have to imitate 
Paul says to imitate him as he imitates Christ in 1 Corinthians 4. He says it in 11. He hints at it other times. Ways we imitate Paul from this passage, first we have to assess. We have to assess the world around us. We have to assess our peer groups. We have to assess people and their motives. I always think about this in terms of sharing the gospel. I think about it as a rock climbing wall. The thing that differentiates a beginner's wall to an, to an expert wall is the number of handholds there are. And so I don't want to take someone who's never rock climbed to this wall where they have to do all kinds of like go-go gadget arms to try and climb this thing. I want to take them to one that looks like a ladder. There's handholds everywhere. Is it still hard? Is it strenuous? Yes, the gospel is always going to be that. We're not advocating easy believism. What we're advocating is a winsome gospel presented to someone, meeting them where they are. Not changing anything in it. And the reason I can say that is because it's exactly what Christ did. He used different methods at different times according to what he assessed. Spiritually sensitive, observing the same things Paul was doing. That's why sometimes he feeds the crowds. Sometimes he retreats from the crowds. I love his interaction with Nicodemus. It's different than a lot of his other interactions. Why? Because Nicodemus was a scholar. He was an intellectual. And so they have this witty philosophical banter. It's starkly different than how he interacts with uneducated people. And both are good. But he's assessing the situation. The woman at the well is a great example. He goes to her. He should not go to her. He goes to her with emotional connection, something she has probably been lacking most of her life. He emotionally connects with her first just by approaching her and talking with her and giving her one-on-one attention. But then he also brings like a firm hand and says, hey, go fetch your husband. And he tells her to repent. So he doesn't soft-pedal the message, but he meets her where she is. We have to assess the situation. After we assess the situation, we have to address both the head and the heart. How do we address the head and the heart? One way we do it, and what Paul was doing, is we get better at apologetics. And apologetics isn't just outside the church to unbelievers. We should be doing apologetics in the basement of this church. We should be doing apologetics among each other so that we're prepared when we go out into the world. There's a verse in Philemon where it talks about the sharing of faith will grow you in understanding, but a Christian is writing it to another Christian about a group of Christians. He's saying, share your faith with one another. That's how you grow in understanding. You also share it with outsiders as well, but we're to do both. It's not an either or, it's a both and. We need to counter the myths of our culture. We need to uh, hear that the death knell of religion is upon us and counter that because it's not true. Voltaire, French philosopher, writer, he said that within 100 years of his death, the Bible would be totally irrelevant. 100 years after his death, you know who owned his house? A Bible translation society. They're translating Bibles out of the house where he proclaimed that the Bible would be irrelevant. We need to counter that myth. We need to meet the yearning void in those around us, the yearning void of the world and all these actions we see that we don't agree with and we we don't like and we're not sure why it's going on. I can tell you why it's going on because people are after two things and they always have been and they always will be, transcendence and significance. You want transcendence and you want significance. And so what you say to those people when they're seeking transcendence through a sexual way or they're seeking significance through a sexual way or through a materialistic way or through a humanistic way, you say, hey, when you get everything you want, every agenda, every law, every single thing you want, when you have it all, then what? It's a difficult question for someone without a faith paradigm. We also have to challenge the happiness myth. The life is all about being happy. We have to challenge that at every turn. Uh, an old confession says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We cannot enjoy 
life. We cannot enjoy blessing. We cannot enjoy gifts fully if they're detached from God. But the problem is we have to diagnose the sickness without being afflicted by it. I'm not saying we don't sin. I'm not saying sin's not going to affect us. I'm going to uh, the youth camp this week, and if someone comes up to me and says, hey, do you want to use my bug spray? And their face is just pockmarked with mosquito bites. They have it all over their arms. They, they have it everywhere. Am I going to use their spray? I'm going to say, no, I'm going to find some different spray. Your spray isn't working. I'm going to go find some spray that's more effective. I'm going to go find my hope, my significance, my transcendence somewhere else. That's what happens when a Christian comes and says, hey, man, you, you totally have to change. You totally have to repent, and then you're the most materialistic person on the block. They say, no, I know your type. I know that game. I live that game, too. We're in the same standing. I don't want what you've got. It's no different than what I have. You have to challenge the happiness myth, and one of the ways we challenge it is not by marching to that drummer. The third thing is we have to accept we don't have to, I'm not talking about accepting others, although in some ways we should. I'm not saying accepting sin. I'm not saying accepting the tide of the world. I'm not saying that. The thing we have to accept, the thing Paul was willing to accept, the thing Jesus was willing to accept, we have to accept unacceptance. See, at some point the church made a decision that they'd rather be relevant than give life. It's relevance versus life. There's a study out, and I don't know much about it. It might be false, so I just want to throw that disclaimer. But apparently they're getting close to curing some types of early stages of cancer. And the way they're doing it is they're finding the cells that have cancer, and they're injecting HIV into it. The HIV kills the cancer, and then they extract the whole cell. They extract the HIV right out. And so the person ends up going from diseased, and then they fight using a disease, and then they go from disease-free. That's not the way it works for us. We don't get to turn from some, someone from their sexuality that they've been hearing from the cultural myths they've been walking in. They're a broken person. We turn them from sexuality and turn them into a materialistic person or a more humanistic person. We don't fight death with more death. We meet death with life. What we created is relevant youth groups and churches that serve up a behavioral, behaviorally modified versions of what the world already offers. What the world already does better. If I can get that in the world, I'll just get it there. It's better. Why are you offering me just a toned-down version of what I can get anywhere else? I love at the end of 17, we won't turn there, but at the end of 17, you can look at it in, on your own, but the end of 17, it never gets brought up. Acts 17 is preached on all the time, and it's all about being relevant and culturally engaged and observing. But at the end, Paul uses relevant to get in the door, and then he lands the plane. He leaves relevant at the door, and then it's all about the gospel. And he scoffed for it. It says that some people were going to deal with it later and come back and think about it, so they didn't even dignify a response. And then the other people scoffed or mocked him. And then a few people joined him. We stop at relevant because we worship acceptance. When I stop at relevant, what I'm saying is that I love me more than Jesus. One of the best things that's happened in my job isn't that people have come to faith. I mean, that's amazing. That's probably, like, universally the best thing. But the best thing that's happened to me personally to grow me as, a, as an individual isn't that a bunch of people are in small groups or, or anything like that. The thing that's grown me the most is 
A month and a half ago, a leader at our company was telling me about a leader in our town who's married to someone in our company. So one guy's talking to me. He's talking to me about this other person who's married to someone in our company. And he said, it's the funniest thing, which I didn't think it was. He said, this person hates you, <laughs> told their spouse to stay away from you, said that you were poison. Poison. Precise word used, poison. All I'd ever done to this person who's saying this is shake their hand, say my name, and got their name, and then we went our separate ways. And did it with a smile. It wasn't like a mean handshake. I didn't, like, do any tricks or anything or, like, twist their arm. Like, it was a cordial meeting. Hates me. Calls me poison. And it really hurt me, and I was thinking, man, how can I win this person back? Or I was thinking all this acceptance stuff because I love acceptance. I was thinking maybe ministry isn't what it's cracked up to be. Maybe I shouldn't do this anymore. Woe is me. And I realized it's my heart. It's wicked. I want acceptance. And then I realized, why does this person hate me? The only reason they hate me is because they hate Jesus, and they see me as on his side. And then it's a win. If no one hates you, for what you believe about the gospel, you're probably not doing faith right. Now, if they hate you because you're rude or because you're obnoxious, because you're pompous, if they hate, some people probably hate me for that. That's on me, and I need to repent. I need to change those things. Manners do matter. But if someone doesn't hate you purely and simply just because of your love for Jesus, you're probably not doing it like Paul was doing it. If we rejoice in a holy scoffing, makes us cling to Christ even more. With the church, Christ is the only thing that gives us relevance. He's the only unique thing about us. There are groups that are meeting today all over the world who are singing songs, who have some form of scripture, who give money, and who do good things. There are organizations all over this town who have that exactly going for them. The only thing that distinguishes this is Christ. It's the only thing. So to think it's like to get this better music or to do something, to do this, to do that. No, it's Christ. It's ours and the world's only hope. And so the challenge today is to put on these watches and to make best use of the time. Not good use of the time, not okay use of the time, best use of the time. By evaluating the world, by being transformed by what Christ has done and then living out of that. Romans 13, 11 says, do this, knowing the time that it is ready the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. We talked about Christ coming back. Some people are saying it's coming, it's coming. It, it could be tomorrow, it could be next week. I don't know when it is, but I know this. That verse makes it pretty clear. It's closer. Every second we spend here, it's closer. And then I love how he closes in 12. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light you're not fighting a battle, you don't need armor. It's superfluous. It's a waste. You need the armor because you're out there fighting. And we're doing it wisely. We're making best use of the time. We need to put on the watches. We need to check the watches. We need to live in accordance of what the watches are telling us, the time it has for us. One of the ways that Jesus gave us to remember watch number three is communion. One of the things he commanded us to do in remembrance of what he has done and what he will do, what he's doing even now in our hearts. And so we're going to take communion because Jesus told us to. The night he was arrested, he, he stood with the disciples and he broke the bread and he said, take this bread, eat. 
in remembrance of me. And he poured out the cup and he said, this is my blood. We can remember the atoning sacrifice he made. And it can remind us of the better treasure that we have. So we're going to have communion. We're going to reflect on what Jesus has done. And hopefully in that reflection, we're going to be convicted on how to make best use of the time. He's gone to prepare a place for us. And in the meantime, he wants us to be salt and light in this earth. This is open for anyone who's a believer, anyone who claims Christ. And if that's not you, I would say, why are you in church? What if God has a reason for you to be here? Maybe that reason is for you to get connected with him today. Someone might have dragged you. Someone might have cajoled you in here. Someone might have tricked you to get you here. But if God is in control and God is sovereign, you're here. Perhaps there's a reason for that. If you want to talk more about that, there are people who can talk to you here. I can talk to you. You can hit me up. I'm on Facebook. I'm, I'm available. And if you want to take this communion, if you want to have communion with the creator of the world, if you want to have that watch three on your wrist for all eternity, it can happen for you. Let me pray with you. God, we thank you. And we could stop there just by thanking you. We love you. We want to grow in the stewardship of the time. We want to analyze the times, not so we can live by the times of this world, but so we can know what the enemy's doing and counter it with the gospel of your truth. Let us, during this time, enter into your presence humbly, God. Let us confess our sins. And let us grow in relationship with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.